It's the 20th of May, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we talk about nerves, joints, skin, more COVID. A lot of interesting things published this week on RoomNow.com. I think maybe the highlight came up last Friday, late in the day. We received notice that the FDA issued a complete response letter to the makers of bimekizumab, that would be UCB, delaying the further development of bimekizumab in psoriasis. So UCB has submitted a biologic license application of BLA to the FDA for this new drug to be used in treating patients with moderate to severe to severe plaque psoriasis. As you know, it's under development, a lot of other conditions too. Bimekizumab is a dual IL-17 inhibitor, inhibits IL-17A and IL-17F, really encouraging information. In fact, if you look at the news this week on Room Now, you'd see one day we're touting the clinical benefits of bimekizumab, and, and two days later we're saying, oops, the FDA is putting a hold on it. A complete response letter happens when FDA reviewers come across a bump in the road, and maybe it's a fatal bump, maybe it's a minor bump, that nonetheless halts the production. They cannot do further analyses. So there are some issues, I think, with manufacturing that have to be clarified and overcome. Um, Those certainly seem doable. Um, This is certainly better than having a major safety concern or a major hole in your data that needs to more clinical trials and whatnot. So um, I think this is a temporary setback for the development of this interesting new molecule. I think it will be a big player in psoriasis and might be a big player in patients with psoriatic arthritis. But as of right now, um, things are on hold. There's a negotiation between the manufacturer and the FDA. I put up some information about the frequency of musculoskeletal disorders. This comes from a population-based study in Ontario, Canada, where they looked at the cost of uh, healthcare utilization and whatnot in patients with musculoskeletal diseases. And they showed that as far as emergency room visits, 12.3% of emergency room visits were for musculoskeletal complaints. And that as much as 28% of outpatient visits to the physician were for musculoskeletal complaints. This is the kind of numbers you need to quote when talking about the importance of an accurate diagnosis of rheumatic disease when you're teaching, when you're dealing with administrators, etc. So the Nordic registries, there are a bunch of them led by artists and others, Askling and colleagues, uh, reported on a collective experience from four different Nordic registries representing over 24,000 RA patients with over 41,000 new biologic starts in RA patients. Um, and they basically showed that at baseline, at the start of getting a biologic, and you, if you look at those people and you consider their future risk of coronary artery events, so acute coronary syndromes, like MI, that RA patients have an 80% increase. So the odds ratio or hazard ratio here was 1.8, an 80% increase in RA compared to the general population. What I found interesting was that patients who were treated, this was a biologic DMARD thing, when they looked at their controls, being on biologic DMARDs did not, in and of itself, protect against getting another uh, such event. Um, or an initial event, I should say. And that was looking at a three-year and five-year time frame, what we call sort of short and intermediate time frames. Yet, there are, as you know, there are a number of papers showing that use of TNF inhibitors and other biologics have 
been known to and shown to decrease the risk of future cardiac events. But generally what you need to know is that data is best applied to responders. So being on a biologic per se, um, noting that not everybody responds to a biologic, um, and, so, and patients who go on biologics often have more severe disease. Um, there are, I think, two key factors here in the protective effect of a biologic. One would be a good response, and two would be the duration of therapy. There have been a number of studies showing the duration of therapy, like as much as four years or more, the kind of duration of therapy that was shown in the oral surveillance safety study with tofacitinib, you needed four years or more to show the downside of car- as far as cardiac events. Again, you some also need um, a long duration to show the upside of uh, significant therapeutic interventions. So I went out on a limb this week. I, I went down a rabbit hole looking at cryotherapy. I've always had this belief that one good way of managing an uncontrolled patient, a flaring patient, would be to give them cryotherapy. That, And I, I'm not talking a bag of ice. I'm talking like put them in one of those cryotherapy, futuristic Woody Allen-like changes for, you know, uh, a minute and a half and, you know, drop it down to 130 degrees centigrade and see what happens. Well, you know, that happens to professional athletes, right? After they play a football game, get all banged up, they, they use cryotherapy to limit the amount of damage and injury. So there are two studies. One was a, a study from the last year that was a randomized controlled trial of whole body cryotherapy, WBC, easy to remember. And there the treatment is getting at 130 degrees centigrade for three minutes. And they have six visits of WBC over a two-week period. This is a study of 56 RA patients, small study. Two weeks later, the pain outcomes were much better in the cryotherapy group compared to controls. And there was some extension out to 12 weeks, but not all measures remain beneficial. So we, out to 12 weeks, disease activity was no longer significant, improved, but not significant, as was functional measures. I would assume that would be hack. So there, I think there is a, a future of this. This is a study I'd like to design going forward. It's backed up by an adjuvant-induced arthritis model in rats where they actually use local cryotherapy here. I guess they were using a bag of ice because they can't find those cylindrical machines for those little rats. Um, and maybe that would be animal cruelty to put them in, a, in, in one of those for a few minutes. Anyway, they actually use local ice on paws that they would induce arthritis in. And when they did actually, you know, treat the animal who had induced, adjuvant-induced arthritis, um, that the ones who got the cryotherapy, local cryotherapy, had less vascular damage, less structural change, less endothelial activation, and mediators of inflammation looked at by mRNA um, signatures, less CXCL1, IL-6, IL-1 beta, um, um, less overall leukocyte infiltration, um, especially into the aorta, which they looked at, lower IL-17A and lower osteoprotegrin levels, all from cryotherapy. Now, again, a rat model is not a human, but I think that this is an unexplored area in rheumatology. Um, the Israelis are leading the way, as you know, in COVID research. They've done some very important COVID research and really informed the rest of the world on a lot of things, including um, breakthrough infections and the need for boosters, etc. Um, the duration of effect of what we're doing. Anyway, they have a study of um, several mul- uh, big centers, and they collected 171 kids with um, multi-system inflammatory disease in children, MISC disease, their mean age, median age was eight years with a range of uh, five to 12. 
Uh, as you know, this is a little older in MISC compared to Kawasaki's. Um, and they looked at the distribution of these 59 infections and when they occurred. And they kind of occurred in all of the spikes of COVID that have occurred. 59 during the original alpha spike, 79 more during the delta spike, and 33 in the Omicron, Omicron wave. They, their experience, um, all patients were treated with IVIG and steroids. Uh, they showed that 6 to 15% during these different waves had already received vaccination with COVID. So these would be kids. Obviously, not a lot of them were vaccinated, but only 6 to 15%. The good news was if you were vaccinated, you were not going to go to the ICU and you were not going to receive vasopressive therapy, meaning that it was less severe. Who got more severe disease? Generally, it was during the first wave. During the alpha wave, when there was a higher risk of getting the infection, 55 cases per 100,000, um, and it went down with the Delta and the Omicron. Milder disease, as you would imagine, is during the Omicron phase. Another bit of evidence, I think, speaks to IL-6 and cytokine storm with COVID. Um, I guess Japanese researchers looked at a, a model of COVID where they looked at SARS-CoV-2 infected alveoli and they threw a lot of stuff on it to see what would happen. And it turns out that it was an N-protein coating plasmid um, that would induce IL-6. Um, they also showed that if you took serum from patients who were infected, it also induced more IL-6. And the worse the disease, the worse the patient, the more IL-6 that would get induced. So it appears that antibodies against the um, N-protein are potent uh, at producing IL-6 and may be part of the cytokine, cytokine storm story. As you know, it's actually part of the, the core of the viral um, um, protein. Uh, it's not the S spike protein. It's the it's core is where you find this N protein. Another bit of information about COVID was last week, the FDA approved uh, uh, the rheumatologist drug baricitinib or Illumiant for the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who either required supplemental oxygen, mechanical ventilation, ECMO, um, and the recommended dose here was four milligrams given once a day for two weeks or until hospital discharge. So I think that I think that's major data, and I'm sure that you would see the same. Uh, well, I think you would see the same with the other Jack and Hibbers, but they got to do the work if they want to get the approval. Um, Baricitinib also in the news this week, a, the results of the um, phase two trial, 24-week trial, 314 patients treated, uh, lupus patients treated with either baricitinib or 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 placebo showed that baricitinib effectively lowers double-stranded DNA titers, IgG levels, SM, and anti-cardiolipin antibodies had no effect on complement or RNP, SSA, or SSB. Interestingly, to you, maybe not to me, that the changes, the reductions in double-stranded DNA did not correlate with the clinical responses as measured by the SRI4 outcome. So, you know, in baricitinib clinical trials, the drug did work in lupus, looking at SRI, SRI4 outcome, except you couldn't correlate it here with the serologies that we normally do. This speaks to, I think, an overwhelming issue that we have in lupus, that the things that we're hanging our hat on, complements, protein, double-stranded DNA, actually pro probably are not the best outcome measures uh, in lupus, and that needs to be revisited, restudied, um, and rethought. Uh, the journal Dysphagia, guess what, has an article about dysphagia. Who'd have thunk? Um, except they were addressing dysphagia due to autoimmune causes, and I thought it was a good call to remind you of what may um, 
cause dysphagia in your realm. They tend to refer to this as autoimmune neurogenic dysphagia, and obviously high on the list are the inflammatory myopathies, especially inclusion body myositis, myasthenia gravis, Guillain-Barre, multiple sclerosis, NMO, paraneoplastic neuropathies. Um, I want to remind those of you who consider this that you need to be clear about whether this is upper pharyngeal dysphagia or lower esophageal dysphagia, lower esophageal dysphagia, or obstructions, uh, problems of dysmotility with scleroderma and crest and um, Barrett's esophagus, etc. But the upper ones are skeletal muscle, and that's why you see a lot of these ones that are on this list are usually upper pharyngeal dysphagia, but that needs to be uh, separated out from Sjogren's syndrome and dry mouth because that will cause dysphagia as well. Just because you have dry mouth and difficulty swallowing, the food getting stuck, caught in the upper throat doesn't mean that you have an autoimmune disease. If you have dry mouth, that's the most likely cause. Another rarity in rheumatology is the association of LGL leukemias with rheumatoid arthritis. That stands for large granular lymphocyte leukemias. This accounts for less than 5% of all uh, lymphoproliferative disorders in the, gen in the hematologic world, and is, but is often associated with autoimmune disease and a spectrum of them, but amongst that group, RA is high on the list. Often at the core of this discussion uh, is who's diagnosing it. If it's a heme guy, then they often find arthritis as part of the picture. If it's a room guy, they have rheumatoid arthritis and they get developed rheumatoid arthritis. So the question is, which comes first and which causes what? Don't think it matters very much. The bottom line is you treat what you got. Um, and, you know, treatments are fairly standard there as to what we use. We, we, if we have to control rheumatoid. So you can use methotrexate or any effective therapies, but have to work with the hematologist. When would you suspect an LGL um, in an RA patient? Those who have new onset problematic leukopenia and anemia less commonly thrombocytopenia, less commonly pancytopenia. Uh, often these people will have splenomegaly, and then they obviously need um, diagnostic measures to make a diagnosis of an LGL um, uh, leukemia in an RA patient. Uh, Krausen and colleagues at the Mayo reported their results of multimorbidity in RA. They studied the Olmsted County uh, cohort matched it with a non-RA cohort, 1,643 in each group, and looked at the frequency of 44 or more comorbidities. They found that up to 86% of RA patients have a comorbidity, but then again, so do the population. But if you look at five or more comorbidities, that was seen in 55% of RA patients and 38%, or one-third of an age-matched non-RA population. This is important because such patients tend to have worse disease, tend to have poorer outcomes, tend to respond less to therapy. Identification of multimorbidity is a gigantic red flag that you, the rheumatologist, have to steer towards proper management if you're not going to take it on yourself. So another, I think, really interesting paper, I think this week came from Nature, I think it's Nature, um, about um, uh, neural crosstalk in promoting symmetric polyarthritis. This was a novel study um, that is probably worth reading our report about, about it. And basically, they looked at a mirroring model of RA. They would induce inflammation, for instance, in one ankle or paw, um, get a, a, a big IL-6 signal and that would feed on itself and amplify IL-6 and generate ATP, which would then, by signaling through the spinal cord, would lead to contralateral production of ATP in the other joint on the other side that would lead to more IL-6 and more inflammation. What? 
the spread of symmetric disease and inflammation may be neurally stimulated or mediated. So again, in this case, um, ATP is responsible for the crosstalk, but it's also responsible for the inflammatory amplification. They referred to the, and by the way, why did this work? Well, if they did surgical ablation or pharmacologic ablation of that inflammatory or neural signal on one side, they did not get the reproduction on the other side and did not get the ATP appearing on the other side. So this is kind of novel. This could lead to future treatment. They call this the remote inflammation gateway reflex. Um, and it's not that far off. You've seen the results with vagal nerve stimulation leading to control of TNF um, and control of RA inflammation. Again, this connection between neurology and immunology is going to be much more important in the future. Uh, another study from the Mayo Clinic looked at the rising incidence of lupus in the population. This is a four-decade study, as only the Mayo can do, and showed that in age-adjusted, sex-adjusted um, studies of lupus in the population, that it starts, it was an average of about five cases per 100,000, but uh, it, it, in 1976, it was 3.32. In 2018, it was 6.44. So it's clearly going up. It's clearly going up by age, by um, by decade. It's not necessarily related to activity, uh, I think is what they said. But the important thing is that um, this increase could reflect the increase in racial and minority diversity in that population over those different time periods. So while it could be a de novo population, environmental risk, we don't know the cause of this. It could be changes just in the profiling. We certainly know that that the, the all the data we have now on ethnic disparities and higher risk of disease and more severe disease could also explain this rising um, incident rate uh, in this epidemiologic study. Um, I want to remind you that uh, Room Now is now featuring um, this week and in the weeks to come the many presentations that were had and done at Room Now Live 2022 in March. Um, this week, you'll see great talks by Peter Lipsky. If you haven't seen the talk by Uma Mahadevan about pregnancy, uh, you got to. It's, I think, the best 15-minute talk I've ever seen done. She talks about how stopping drugs leads to greater harm in RA outcomes. Uma is the head of, uh, of GI and Crohn's studies at uh, UCSF. She's been working on this for a long time, gives a brilliant talk, highly relevant to rheumatologists. I can't urge you enough to go look at it either on our YouTube channel or on our website. For you nurse practitioners and PAs, I want to hear your cases and your questions. Um, you can click on the box on the email and on the website that says Ask Cush Anything. It's a big blue box. Luckily, it doesn't have my picture in it. Um, and I think that uh, we can discuss the, those kind of cases here on the podcast in the future. Lastly, I want to remind you our next installment of Room Now Live 2022 is the session we call them pods, on RA Best Management. We're going to hear clips from three fabulous speakers. You can watch this by clicking on and registering through the um, uh, the Zoom webinar. We'll send you a uh, an invite. Or you can watch the live stream on YouTube, LinkedIn, and live stream on Twitter, where it's there for you to watch at all times. These are one-hour sessions. We're going to hear excerpts from Janet Pope talking about drug cycling. Uh, Elena Masadova from the Mayo, who did all this work on multimorbidity, great lecture. And Karen Kostenbatter from Boston talking about preventing rheumatoid arthritis. Again, really cool stuff. 
Tune in next week for more of the podcast. Stay well.